Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Far Stuff. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Far Stuff. Hi, my name is Terry Dunlap. I'm the uh, founder and CEO of Tactical Network Solutions. I was arrested for computer hacking back in 1985 before there were actual computer crime laws on the books. You started it. You were their first warning light. <laughs> no, there, I think there were plenty more before me. It's just that they were starting to get serious about it then. So I just slipped under the, uh, the radar just in time. I was 17 at the time, so they didn't charge me as an adult. But what they could charge me with, uh, the only thing on the books at the time, was uh, credit card fraud. Because part of our activities as as kids uh, was to do dumpster diving. We would literally go to the local mall, go into the dumpsters in the middle of the night, rip open the bags, pull out all the carbons. For those of you old enough that remember credit cards where they had to use the carbon to make copies, we just collected those carbons, pasted them all back together, and then sent the uh, credit card numbers to various bulletin board systems. This was uh, before the public internet when you had to use a modem and actually dial in long distance usually Wow. to bulletin board systems. And I think if I recall correctly, the one I would dial into from Ohio was one there in California called The Well, I think is that that's what the name of it was. And there was like a subboard on there for uh, stolen credit card numbers. And so we would give them the credit card numbers we found, and then we would download uh, and use credit card numbers that we found from a different part of the country. So it's sort of like Pokemon, <laughs> only with credit card numbers. Yeah. The days of the BBSs, man. I still have very fond memories of those days. I tried to be a, a, a sysop. I just couldn't deal with it. I just got more into the war dialing and the computer hacking and trying to cause mischief and see what I could get away with. Plus, who has a computer where you can run like the BBS forum software all day? Who has that extra computer when you're a kid? I mean, that's what you use the credit cards for. Oh, I see. Stolen credit sure. card numbers to, to buy the resources that you it's need. It's a virtuous cycle, really. Yeah. Excellent. So that is your first introduction to the world of online security was you were a little scamp. Yes. Yes. And you were actually instigating uh, very small crimes against humanity. And then, so what happened at the time? Like you said, they really had no idea what to do with you. Right. They didn't. So they, they arrested me and my, my crew of two people. And, <laughs> and uh, how old were you at this time? 17. The other two guys I was working with, they were younger than I was. They, they were uh, 15 and 16. They had jobs at uh, local restaurants and they were pilfering credit card uh, carbons out of the, the waste paper baskets at night. And we would, like I said, piece them together and then use those numbers to, to buy stolen goods and whatnot. More computing power, if you will. And so what happened when they finally managed to catch you and tell you that you shouldn't be doing this anymore? What, what was your process after that? Actually, I, uh, all three of us spent Labor Day weekend. So it was an extended stay at the local juvenile detention center. I mean, we were in the, the, the full, you know, orange jumpsuits when we went to court. They shackled our ankles like a chain gang. So it was it was a sight to behold. Um, but when we got in front of the judge, uh, the only thing that they, they could really stick us with was uh, credit card fraud. So I was uh, sentenced uh, about three years probation. Uh, and that was pretty much it. Not to touch a computer again. So I, and I, here I am going to college my freshman year. And I'm told I can't touch a computer. So <laughs> that made things a little more challenging. Was it like first day back to being allowed to touch computers that you just grabbed one and started hacking again? Just <laughs> felt like no, a, not, a rush. Not, not really. I mean, 
even though I wasn't supposed to touch them, I mean, I, uh, let's be honest, I, I had to, you know, write term papers and stuff. So, yeah. you know, I had an Apple IIe at the time and all that kind of stuff. I continued to uh, explore the world of Linux and uh, learned programming and uh, scripting and stuff on my own. Uh, realized that I, you know, don't want to mess up my future again. So I, I was really actually turned off by computers after after that. I even my very first programming class in college, which will probably shock a lot of people that are going to school or have been recently. My first exposure to a programming class was assembly language. And I think today most people are like introduced to computer programming via Java. And it turned me off. And I dropped that class like a bad habit and said, nah, this ain't for me. And so I followed a, uh, a liberal arts path instead of a, uh, you know, more of an engineering path and went political science and economics and stayed away from the hacking scene for a while until I actually landed my my, my first job, which was in the, the financial services area. And I got really tight with the... Um, the IT admin guy and was swapping my, you know, high school hacking stories. And uh, he said, you still into that? And I said, eh, you know, a little bit. I kind of have my own lab at home. I kind of set stuff up and, you know, try and keep up with what's going on and, you know, test out security things. I'm always curious. I'm always, you know, trying to push the envelope of some of these systems and what they, what they can do and what they can't do. And he said, you know, that uh, here at the company, this was at Deloitte and Touche at the time. You know that they actually, you know, get paid to do that stuff. I said, get paid to do what stuff? I said, get paid to break into computer systems. We have a whole team up in Chicago. They basically pen tested client networks. I said, wow, I can't believe people get paid to do this stuff. That would yeah. be awesome. So he submitted my name. Uh, I got the interview with him and I got to, you know, get on the pen testing team, which was cool. That was awesome. The stuff that we found was just simple, low hanging fruit, you know, root password as passwords on remote FTP servers into large utility companies. I mean, it was frightening, some of the stuff that we would find. Um, but it was during that time that uh, I actually went to my very first uh, computer security conference in the Baltimore area at the convention center. And it just happened to be, by chance, I'm in a, uh, a Starbucks line and there's a woman in front of me who has a name tag on and just says that she works for the DOD. And I turned to her and I said, man, I would love to work for the DOD because you guys are probably under constant attack and being in such a challenging environment would be awesome to hone your skills and work. And I think that would just be so cool. So we got to chit chat for a while and she said, send me your resume. Uh, my, my boss is always looking for good people. So I said, okay, sure. So, you know, time goes by government bureaucracy. I was beginning to learn turns really slow and I finally got a, uh, phone call about three to five months later saying, Hey, my boss is going to reach out to you. want to make sure this number's still good and you're still interested. And I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. So I'm still working for Deloitte and Touche. The project I was on was really boring. It was people soft security. I was itching to get away from that, but uh, I finally got the phone call and um, guy introduced himself and I kid you not, I almost fell out of my chair because he told me who he was and then he worked for the national security agency. And I had no idea that's who I was talking to at this conference because the badge simply said DOD. They gave me a phone interview and, uh, you know, they said, hey, the, you know, we like what we we hear. Um, we'd like you to, you know, come out for an in-person interview. Is that something you'd be up for? You know, we'll play, pay for your plane ticket, your hotel, all that kind of stuff. I said, sure, absolutely. 
So they sent me the, the material and I'm on my way to the airport that day. And my wife at the time calls me and says, are you still going to your interview today? I said, yeah, I'm on the road. I'm going to the airport right now. She said, well, I don't think the flight's going to take off. You don't know what's going on, do you? I said, no, I'm, why? What's, what's going on? It happened to be 9-11. I was on my way to the airport for this interview. So once I figured out what was going on, I obviously, you know, turned around, got the voicemail from from the agency that uh, it's been postponed and saw the uh, the attacks unfold. Um, It was that October. The uh, interview finally got rescheduled, went out there, um, did the interview. Everyone's telling me, yeah, you know, we'd like to, you know, have you on the team, but, you know, money's a problem. Money's a problem. That's always money's a problem in the government. So I finally end up going back to the uh, my main point of contact, the recruiter there. And he goes, so what did they think? I told him, I said, well, I mean, they seemed interested, but everyone's telling me that they they don't have a billet, which is like in military terms, a position for a body with money behind it. And he said, well. They don't know this, but while you were interviewing, I just received an email uh, from higher up that Congress has allocated all kinds of money to fight the war on terrorism. So money is not going to be a problem. So here's what you need to do next. You need to fill out this packet of information to get your security clearance. And it was it was a lot of paperwork. How long did that process take? Uh, It took a year to get cleared. I told the NSA recruiter, I said, look, I'm going to tell you something about my background that may prohibit me from getting this clearance. I said, I was arrested as a teenager for computer hacking. Well, you know, credit card fraud. Um, Is that going to be a problem? And he said, are you doing it right now? I said, well, you know, in my own lab, in my basement, (laughs) just trying to keep my skills up, but I'm not like breaking in places and, and stealing stuff. Right. He said, look, as long as you're not doing it now, it shouldn't be a problem. So, you know, when the investigators came to the house, I told them, I showed them all the newspaper clippings and I told them, I said, hey, look, my lawyer tells me that down at the courthouse, my juvenile record has been expunged. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but I assume since you're with the government, you probably have a way to find that file. So I'm just telling you when you go down there, it's there. I'm not hiding anything. So I'm telling you up front. And, you know, had to go through the uh, the polygraph test, which I did not pass the first two times. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I continue to this day still have my security clearance and I uh, uh, still have problems passing the polygraph on the very first time. Because when they come up, when they bring up that past, I'm sorry, my heart rate just kind of accelerates. and It just it just, you know, brings back memories. Um, but, yeah, it took a year to finally get it. And. Um, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad that, uh, you know, the whole thing turned out the way it did, because then I went to work for the National Security Agency, uh, spent about five years there doing offensive cyber ops, uh, going after stuff that uh, was embedded. And uh, what an interesting five years to be at the NSA. I mean, how was it when you started? They were still, I imagine, sort of reeling. Yeah, they, they were. And uh, a lot of our a lot of the work that um, I was involved with was uh, in, directly in support of the uh, Iraq Afghanistan war. So, um, yeah, it was it was a very interesting time. What can you share about what they used you for? Were you trying to penetrate soft spots in their systems? There's a public face to the NSA, which is uh, the Information Assurance Directorate, known as IED. 
those are the guys who you see quoted in the press that talk about, you know, how to secure systems, the guys that will go help Google if Google's under attack and, you know, all that kind of stuff. The other side of the house is the signals intelligence directorate, which is the spooky side of the house, which is actually uh, their, their purview is to collect intelligence from foreign areas. And that's the side of the house I was on. So we were tasked with going after foreign computer systems, foreign targets, and trying to infiltrate and collect intelligence. Do you feel like when you started there that they had a decent handle on what was going on in the world with technology? Or did it kind of feel like you got arrested at 17 and they're like, we know you did something, but we don't know what to do about it. (laughs) When I started there, they were wrapping their head around the whole internet thing. There were still a lot of leftover relics from the Cold War. A lot of those those people there, um, I mean, they, they still continue to do, you know, intercepts and voice translations and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it was at the time it was shifting out of that Cold War mentality into this this cyber realm. Yeah. Which now, you know, today they've they've fully embraced and are on board with um, and, and they still face the challenge of collecting, storing, and analyzing all this information. I mean, look, I've, I've been there. I've seen these systems um, for the Americans who, who think that everything that they do and say and type and send is being monitored and somebody's looking at it. It's, it's, not, it's not true. It's just not true. Um, they're, they're short-staffed. They don't have enough people to do all this. They're very selective in who they go after. Not everyone is that interesting. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody cares that, you know, you and I are having this podcast and they don't care that what we have to say because we're we're nobody to them. We're not we're not an enemy of the state. Now that you've got your own company, do you feel like you have some insight because of your experience at the NSA that's helpful to other corporations or customers? Yeah, because I think, you know, we bring the perspective of being former state-sponsored actors, if you will, going after other foreign targets. So we know how we would attack your system if it were in a foreign country, and the techniques really don't change. So why can't we give that insight to IoT device manufacturers and say, look, if you want to secure this from being attacked or being used as 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 part of a botnet or some type of uh, malicious activity as a hacker, here's here's how we go about finding the holes in your device. Maybe these are some areas that you never thought of, or maybe they're areas that you've overlooked but should reconsider. Being able to do that, I think, brings value to the table because we offer a different perspective that your traditional pen testing company with a CISSP and a bunch of SAN certifications probably can't bring to the table. Do you have any examples of ways that IoT has been hacked or used or any anything that kind of shows how incredibly vulnerable this particular industry is? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean... Uh, it's all over in the press. I mean, the most recent one was the uh, Mirabot net attack where default usernames and passwords were were left in the devices. I mean, this isn't a manufacturing problem. This is end users just being simply lazy and not going in to change the default usernames and passwords to something more secure. But at a, a more technical level, uh, some of the more sophisticated attacks take example of very simple things uh, known as like buffer overflows or command line injections. And the result of that or the reason that those attacks take place is because of 
insecure coding practices. People are not coding securely. They may be writing their source code and the tool may operate, but if you're you know, using an insecure function that would allow an attacker to overwrite commands in memory, then it's easy pickings for somebody like us. Those, those types of problems for like desktop applications and mobile applications have been resolved for decades. Now, why they're suddenly cropping up in IoT devices all over again, it's just like the wild, wild west of the late 80s, early 90s in, in terms of, you know, attacks and in poor coding styles. I, I just don't get it. But what we find when we run our analysis on a bunch of, uh, you know, random firmware on, on these IoT devices, it's just crappy code. Simply put, it's crappy code. I don't know why it's happening. Maybe it's a lack of knowledge or trying to get the product out the door as fast as possible to make that buck. I mean, based on kind of everything you're saying, it feels like users don't know what they should be doing. I don't know that they're lazy or, or I just think a lot of users don't even know. I mean, I feel like that's the number one problem with IoT is you get it home and 90% of people don't know even how to set it up, even with your Alexa or your Echo or your Dot or whatever. Let's talk about that for a second. Okay. So let's, let's examine this, uh, whether it's Siri or Alexa or Dot. Now, can you explain to me how these devices work. Don't mean to put you on the spot. How are these things able to do what they do? The device is continuously listening. Mm -hmm. There's an onboard chip that detects the trigger word. And so nothing that you say in theory is sent to the maker of the device uh, until you say that trigger word. Alexa, Amazon. At, at which point uh, it's monitoring what you say. It's sending that to the cloud to run some analysis on the language that you use to try to turn that into actions, throwing that action back to the device at which point it's using your network or using Zigbee or whatever to control uh, your local devices. And that's why you can't turn off lights when you have no internet. <laughs> so let me ask you this. People are willingly giving over their money for these devices, right? Right. And these devices are constantly listening to what's being said and all the conversations in and around the device, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. What would happen if that same device was produced by... Mm, the National Security Agency. How would people feel then? We've talked about this before because that's my biggest concern is people are paying for the convenience and they're enjoying the convenience, but they're absolutely giving up their privacy and, and it's creepy. Exactly. And there's, there is a general sense of creepiness when your ads start changing across sites because you've talked about something in front of your phone. Yes. And this country would be up in arms if the government... Uh, was behind something like this and said, hey, we we want to make a convenience device, but in exchange for the convenience, we're going to listen to everything that you say in order to provide you that convenience. But Terry, that's the evil government. These are kind-hearted corporations. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite instance of this recently are the creepy cloud pets where they just didn't password protect, I think, their MongoDB database well enough. And Two million voice recordings of children and parents. I saw that. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's crazy. <laughs> yep. But, but yet people are willing to pay for this stuff. But if the government offered this as a convenience solution, I mean, there'd be lawsuits filed everywhere. But yet people, you know, just because it's Google or Amazon or somebody that you deal with on a daily basis and, you, you know, it's a publicly traded company, it's, it's well and good and it's okay. Here's my money. Take it and listen to everything I say. 
I think we as consumers are just so desperate to be in the future that the second you get anything that seems cool and fun and trendy and new, we've become desperately eager to have hold of it. I'll tell you right now is when I am done with this company, I already told my wife, I said, we are going so far off the grid. <laughs> we we are going to ditch everything. We're going to build a log cabin in the woods and we'll come in. We'll come into town to do our shopping and whatnot, maybe once once a once a week or something. But yeah. Captain Fantastic. (laughs) So, Terry, do you think that, seriously, if you look back at the differences between these newfangled voice devices and just using your browser on a day-to-day basis, obviously, if you go to a site, you're being tracked by 25 different companies. Is there any difference between those two scenarios? Or is Alexa effectively like another browser? I think uh, Alexa and Dot and and all these other services is... uh, a browser for your voice is basically what it is. Instead of typing, you don't need to screen. You just ask a question and, you know, the answer mysteriously appears. And who knows who's getting a copy of all those voice cuts. So I, I really don't think there's there's much of a difference between using those tools or, you know, talking to a, a device. I guess if I had to pick one, and I'm sorry for answering my own question, that's really idiotic. But <laughs> I guess if there's a difference, it's the fact that you could inadvertently be using 10 of these things in your house, um, potentially in, in say five years at the same time without even really knowing it. Yeah. Without having initiated the, the, uh, transaction that easily could be done. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if people have multiple, these multiple devices in their homes now. Well, isn't that the problem? Like twofold one, you have to educate customers, like customers need to understand what it is that they've bought, that they're putting in what fancy toy, what connection, what it does and how to properly manage it in their world. But then, great, I've done everything on my side, but the developers left a huge hole somewhere or the firmware's bad or or there's actually a virus on the thing that was assembled in China. And it doesn't matter if I know what I'm doing, right? So y- you kind of have to hit both sides of the coin, don't you? Yeah, you do. Terry, when you sell this stuff to companies, are they, do they get it? Are they coming to you or do you have to actually educate them to get the business? It depends on who you talk to. Some people truly get it. Those that aren't on board yet, they understand they need to be on board, but they don't want to spend any money to cut into their profit margins to get that low price product out the door. Uh, So it's an afterthought. They'd rather deal with the repercussions down the road thinking it won't happen to them. But they're well aware of the fact that this is something that they, they should take heed and do something about. But from a cost benefit standpoint, it's not worth it to them. But what's going to end up happening, I believe, is, you know, if, if this, this movement for more product liability to be pushed back on these manufacturers when these things get hacked and, you know, your secret videos all of a sudden appear on YouTube or, you know, baby monitors getting hacked or your IP cameras getting hacked, uh, a lot of that liability, they're trying to push that back on the manufacturers. I think once it hits them in the pocketbook, then they're going to start taking it seriously. That always seems to be the case with companies in the country is, you know, I'm going to take the shortest path possible to profitability and I'm not going to add additional security or have to issue that 12 page warning pamphlet on how not to use this device and these improper methods until a lawsuit happens, until it hits them in the pocketbook. Then that's when they step up and decide, okay, let's be proactive or in that case, reactive. You've worked in the government. Is that government's role in this? 
Um, no, I don't think the, the government should be instituting regulations and stuff like that. I'm, I'm a big believer of, you know, less regulation, the better. But I mean, if that's what it takes to get these guys on board to start taking security seriously, then, I, you know, I might be for it. But if the courts can work their way, uh, work, work their magic, you know, people and uh, class action lawsuits like from the FTC going after these companies and hitting them in the pocketbook, well, maybe there's no need for regulation in, in the courts and the monetary damages will, will make them uh, be more uh, in tune with the security needs of these products. Gotcha. So you'd rather let, and I think it's a fine option. I think you'd rather let the market and the legal system allow that to happen. Yeah. But my only thought there is that's going to take 20 years to change behavior. That's my only like, yeah, less government good, but man, my children are going to be grown up by the time that this gets better. Tell me a good story. (laughs) Who's doing a good job? I can't honestly. I can't think of anybody that's doing a good job in the IoT. Terry, I can't. That's not what I wanted to hear. I, I am sorry to be the bearer of bad news, <laughs> but that is reality, my friend. Get used to it. Oh man! Look, I just got off a call before this podcast with a uh, with a potential client who represents a very large resort chain, and one of their competitors uh, was a victim of of ransomware. Now, I don't know the details of, you know, whether they were keeping their systems patched and updated and all that kind of stuff or what the security levels of of that victim company was. But the people in that industry stood up and took notice and are being proactive in calling in consultants and advisors and other companies to say, I don't want that happening to me. What do I need to do to protect myself so that crap doesn't appear here? So I do believe that if the case or the news story or the target is big enough, others in the industry will take notice and become more proactive. It may take some time. I don't think it'll take 20 years, but you get a, you know enough people that become victims and talk spreads within the industries and even like this, you know, this resort industry, they don't want to become a victim of that. So they're, they're, they're being proactive right now. What can we do to keep that from happening to us? So what do you advise if someone wants to get into IoT or they've built an IoT item? Well, look, the easiest thing to do is start off with using uh, these tools that are already out there that they can buy that will audit your source code as you type it. And it will tell you whether or not the code that you're producing is you're doing it in a secure fashion or not. That's the first step. The next step you need to consider is when you take that clean source code after it's been audited by these these other these tools, once you got the, you know, the thumbs up sign that your code is clean, now you're about to compile it with device drivers, maybe from a Broadcom or a Qualcomm or somebody like that, or maybe even third party libraries like uh, LibSSL or LibCurl or LibGet. And most of these come off the Internet. And now you take your clean code, you compile it with all these other things that you had no responsibility in creating, and now you have this binary firmware image you're about to go to production with, how do you know that that image is now clean through and through? Your stuff was clean, but what about those other, you know, two, three, four components that you just compiled into your firmware image? How clean is that stuff? So what we encourage people to do is either get your staff trained on how to reverse engineer firmware, or seek out a firm that does firmware evaluation services, 
kind of like ours, and check that before you actually go to production and put a bunch of these devices out there on the internet that are low-hanging fruit and easily hackable by a 13-year-old. If you can do that starting today, moving forward, I think you'll see a lot of IoT attacks diminish over time. What do we do about the stuff that's already out there? To me, in my book, it's a lost cause. The only thing you can do is, you know, some type of maybe endpoint security or uh, heuristics monitoring, um, you know, those devices that are out there, forget it. I mean, they're, they're exposed. They're probably going to be hacked at some point. Someone's going to find a way in. But we need, we need to start now moving forward that if we want to make sure these devices are secure, it's got to start at the firmware level. What is the equivalent of the Better Homes and Gardens seal for products that have had a really uh, strong concern about security in which the makers consider it a priority to produce secure products? How do consumers learn about this stuff? Are you involved in any kind of conversations about this? And, and what are people saying? So they pay for all of this work from you and you do wonderful work and you have a better product for it. How does that translate into an understanding that people can buy these better products? There are no certifications yet out on the market to say, you know, for example, it's, it's got the TNS seal of approval. It's firmware has been analyzed. It's, you know, got a 90% approval rating. That doesn't exist yet. That's a good, good marketing idea. I like that. <laughs> um, we are in talks with uh, underwriter laboratories and uh, cable labs to look at using our tools and our processes as part of their certification and testing validation process. Uh, it's undergoing you know, testing now, it's not part of that. Both of those groups are ramping up a uh, IoT specific effort to address these problems. So not only are we hearing the rumblings of potential you know, government regulation and, and liability legislation to be pushed back onto manufacturers. But then separately, you got people like Cable Labs and, and UL who are taking the initiative and trying to figure out, okay, how do we set up a testing validation process? What does that look like? What tools do we need to use to bring in to make sure that this stuff passes muster and we can put our seal of approval on it? So it's not there yet, but uh, if things continue to go as planned and things work out well, you know, maybe underwriter laboratories will get into the uh, the business of of putting that UL symbol on IoT devices after it passes their test and evaluation for firmware evaluation. So it's early on, but uh, we're moving in the right direction. So we'll see where we go. What do you think is our responsibility as people that purchase these devices? I mean, yes, we we have this general attraction to get things that make us feel like we live in the future, but. There's quite a few devices that are slowly becoming more and more necessary, like smart heart valves and, uh, you know, your smartphone and all this other stuff. So what as a consumer should we be doing to better protect ourselves? If you are buying these devices and they don't already have a mechanism in place to upgrade the firmware automatically, you need to be proactive and actually start taking some responsibility in doing that. I think most of the phones nowadays let you know that, hey, there's a new iOS available for download, install it. Don't ignore those, install it, get it over with. It doesn't take that long. You're not gonna lose your data. You're not gonna break your phone. Uh, it's been pretty much foolproof. How many of you out there have, you know, wireless routers from your, you know, cable provider or telephone provider in your house? And how often do you update the firmware on them? I would venture to say probably nobody, very few people have. 
So if those devices that your internet service provider is placing in your home doesn't automatically update the firmware, or if they don't push these firmware updates to you automatically, then it's your responsibility, I believe, to log into the web user or the admin interface via the web and update it yourself. And speaking of these devices, please change the default username and password. I mean, that that's usually the biggest thing is buying these devices, plugging them in and just set it and forget it and you leave it go. So the two biggest things I would say is change default usernames and passwords. And if these devices don't already update the firmware for you, just do it yourself. It's not that hard to go out to the vendor website and see what the latest one is and download it. It's not rocket science. It's kind of crazy. We bought a little device called a circle that helps you uh, manage kids and their devices. And what's insane is to see everything in your house that can speak IP until you really get a full listing of the inventory of things in your house that are smart. It's stunning to see 50 devices show up and say, what is that? What is this thing on my network? You know, so even the basics of understanding what's on your home network is a little overwhelming, even to, you know, a savvy person. I can imagine. In fact, um, my wife and I were out looking uh, at new refrigerators lately, and I was just absolutely stunned at some of the stuff that Samsung is producing. These refrigerators with these full screen Internet enabled. It's like, why? Why do I need this screen in my refrigerator? And then I open up the door and I see this little bulge near the uh, the hinge and there's actually an antenna in there. So this is, you know, you can connect it to your Wi-Fi network if you can't plug it in via an Ethernet jack. I just it's just ridiculous. <laughs> I, I just I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting too old. I just do not see the need for any of this stuff. I mean, we j- we just bought a um, uh, for for a uh, vacation rental. We have we have a, um, a General Electric washer and dryer. Now, I didn't read the instruction manual, but I'll be damned. There's an Ethernet jack in that thing. Yeah, I'm not connecting it to anything, but there is an <laughs> Ethernet jack. And I'm thinking, why are you serious? Why? Why does my machine washing machine need an Ethernet jack? I kind of feel like it's the same consumer problem we talked about, right? Everybody wants to feel like they're in the future and all these manufacturers think, okay, IoT is the next trendy thing. Just like blue, it was the next trendy color. So now everything has to be IoT somehow. And they're thinking, okay, I have this iron. People are going to iron their clothes. Maybe it should tweet them on a regular basis. Like they just, they, they don't know and it doesn't make sense. I don't think they're doing the whole user experience test when they're thinking about why and what. They're just thinking, my thing needs this because it's cool. Yeah. I was at the um, IoT Evolution Expo recently down in Florida, and uh, uh, the guy I was speaking with in the booth next to ours, I could not believe this. Uh, if this actually materializes, I'll be surprised. But he said his company is, is kind of a uh, underwriter laboratories competitor and said that they are in the process of evaluating a company's product, which is internet-connected sheets. Bed sheets? Bed sheets. Yes. So the way that these are supposed to work is that over time, they develop a profile of your body temperature and sleep patterns. And therefore, if your body temperature gets to a certain temperature, it can either warm up the sheets or somehow cool down the sheets. And it's somehow it links to your alarm clock and your lights and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, you've got to be kidding. I would have never thought ever to make IoT type sheets. 
it's a whole new level of invasive IoT. Yes. Literally everything around you will be monitoring, checking up on you. There will be too much data. Exactly. The thing that scares me about the refrigerator example is they're not doing that for you. They're doing that for them. There is someone in the organization tasked with increasing the amount of people who connect their refrigerators to the internet by 5% because they get more aggregated data on when people have breakfast in the morning, have dinner at night. It's as if connected devices only seem to have benefits if you're kind of naive about it, but it's really a trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for somebody like me, who's always, my younger brother always said, you know, you're criminal minded because you always think, you're always thinking of ways to like hack into stuff and break stuff. And so, but, but yeah, I mean, I, when, when I hear stuff about internet connected washing machines and refrigerators and sheets, you know, I immediately do not think of the practicalities or the benefits of why this should be. I'm immediately thinking of, God, how can I hack that? How can I get into that? And what could I do with it? And, you know, could I adjust the temperature on a, on a refrigerator? Because as a teenager, you know, if all this internet connected stuff was out there to be able to go to school and say, yeah, I hacked into all these refrigerators in my neighborhood and I, and I jacked up the temperature and now all these people got all their food out on the curb for the garbage collection. Oh, it was so cool and funny. I mean, that's what teenagers do. Uh, you know, whatever type of, you know, hack attack you could think of and gives you bragging rights to go to school and hey, look how badass I am. I think healthy paranoia is healthy. Yeah, no, I, that's, I, maybe I take it to an extreme. I don't know. <laughs> when you left the NSA, it sounds like you brought some friends with you and that's, are those people still with you and helping you? Yep. They're, they're, they're here and um, they, they still have their security clearances as well. We still do some government work, but it's only been in the past, uh, you know, two, three years that we've come out of the shadows and started working with, you know, Fortune 500 companies and other commercial type entities and penetration testers and consultants and advisors. So a lot of people will come to our, our hands-on classes to learn how to do this, you know, firmware reverse engineering by hand and pick up some valuable skills because this is stuff that's not taught in traditional universities. You can't go to you know school and say, I want to major in reverse engineering. Maybe in the future you will, but not right, right now you can't. We're one of probably just a handful of companies, maybe less, that actually teach how to do this stuff by hand. And that has led into those customers coming back to us over time saying, hey, you know, we're either overwhelmed or understaffed. Can you help us? And boy, wouldn't it be great if you guys, you know, had an automated tool to do this too. So that led us down the path of actually creating uh, this platform that we have, Centrifuge, which does all this reverse engineering of firmware by hand in about 20 to 30 minutes. And it basically, you know, it's not going to tell you exactly where the exploits are, but it gives you a great starting point so you don't waste your time. And one thing I've learned being in the commercial world, you know, time is money. And if I can help you figure out within your firmware where you might want to focus your time in terms of shoring up the security, that something like that would, would work. Otherwise, doing it by hand could take you weeks, maybe a month or more to figure out where the security holes are. So yeah, it was, it was because of, of that push to automate what was in our head and what we train people. We realized, you know, there's more people out there besides the intelligence community and the military that might be able to benefit from some of this knowledge. So yeah, we've been we've been slowly getting our you know name out there in front of you know commercial companies and going to a lot of these IoT security type conferences and expos and showing people what they got. And like we said earlier, they don't know what they don't know, and they think you know just testing the security at the application layer they've done enough. 
but in reality, can I can I hack the Wi-Fi signal or the Bluetooth signal, or is there you know a buffer overflow or a command line injection that's hidden in your firmware that you're unaware of that somebody with a little more skill and sophistication might be able to take advantage of? You know, that's where we come into the picture to try and nip that low-hanging fruit in the bud before it actually goes to the production line. What does this industry look like in 10 years when it comes to security? Have we reached the bottom of the barrel? Is there going to be a lot more events like the creepy teddy bear security break? If legislation is passed or regulations are passed to hold manufacturers liable for these types of breaches, then I believe yes. More companies like mine will probably spring up and uh, fill the void that will be created by such you know, regulation or legislation should it come down the pike. But I mean, today it's 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 pretty dismal right now. I don't mean to, you know, sound like Trump being all doom and gloom and, you know, there's no bright future anywhere (laughs) right now. The stuff that's already out there, I would just, you know, write it off. That stuff's probably going to get exploited at some point in time once when it gets discovered. But things can be done now to prevent these types of attacks in the future if they, you know, learn to code securely and check the firmware before it goes to production, that will dramatically reduce. It won't eliminate, but it will dramatically reduce the number of incidences that we're seeing now. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Far Stuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com and at farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form on our site or email us at podcast at farstuff.com. And hey, if you enjoyed listening to our show, make sure to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.